0: 7654321. You'll never have
1: the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother.
0: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. As always, I'm your host, Adam Proctor. Joining me this week is Christian Parenti. Some of you will remember Christian from our earlier episode about free speech and the left that aired a couple of months ago. Well, during that time, Christian and I did a double-header interview, and the second part I'm going to bring to you today it's about the climate crisis and how to fix it. He really reframes the debate in an interesting way. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay tuned. This week's episode is a nice follow-up to last week's show where I had on Matt Brunig and we talked about left-wing policy solutions for a new era. We talked quite a bit about reframing welfare as a system that supports the needs of all in a socialist society and how to get there. So this week we're talking about environmental policy. And Christian Parenti's argument is a very interesting one. It comes uh, largely from an article that appeared in *Descent* Magazine back in 2013. It's called... The Radical Approach to Climate Change, and he makes a number of really interesting arguments. And prime among those you're going to want to uh, look out for, you're not going to be able to miss it, is that he really wants to make a distinction between climate change and the larger ecological and environmental crisis. And he says, notably, at one point in in the interview, he says, climate change is just a subset of a bigger, broader problem. That is the larger ecological crisis. And he, he finds that it's really important to stress this distinction because otherwise we face an intractable problem of environmental catastrophe. And really, climate change is that important that we need to distinguish it from, you know, the radical transformation of our economy to a green one. Uh, the, the, the problem of climate change, as Parenti will reveal, is eminently achievable given the policy, legal, and economic structure that we have in front of us today. Uh, the only thing that is missing is the political movement to put those, those already existing platforms in place. So I think you're really going to en- enjoy the interview today with Christian Parenti. Um, it's a fairly short one, but it's really you know, to the point, and, and we get the job done in a fairly short amount of time. And yeah, the crucial takeaway here is the need to battle cynicism when it comes to the impending ecological doom that we seem to be facing with climate change. Uh, We have to make people think that this battle is winnable because it is imminently achievable. So, as I said, I held off a couple of months to air this interview because I wanted to air it alongside the policy series that I'm sort of running right now for the next week or two, uh, talking about left wing policies for socialist strategy. And so on. But the main reason I wanted to wait is because Christian is going to be speaking at this year's Left Forum. For those of you who don't know, the Left Forum is a yearly event. It's a conference for activists. And, and organizers and theorists and such. It's really a hodgepodge kind of clusterfuck of people. But there's some really interesting things going on this this year at the Left Forum in New York City. Look it up online if you're not familiar with it. It happens in two weeks. Uh, Christian Parenti is going to be on a panel talking about the e- ecological crisis and how to solve it. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that if you are in the New York City area or the uh, Acela Corridor, as they call it. Uh, one of my previous uh, amazing guests, Angela Nagel, is also going to be on a panel. I'll be there as well the dead pundit himself live and in person as if you care but uh if you're gonna be around the left forum feel free to hit me up on twitter for a meetup i'm happy to to talk to anybody who likes this show that means we're like-minded i'm sure we have a lot to talk about so if you're gonna be at the left forum hit me up i'm gonna have a portable recorder i'm gonna do some on-scene interviews to bring to you guys over the course of the next couple of months i'm really excited about you know expanding the capacity of the show to bring you a better product so, yeah, if you want to contact me about the left forum or any other matters, you can find me on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Once more, that's at Dead Pundits. One word, no punctuation. Also, feel free to hit me up on Facebook. You can find my Facebook page at the Dead Pundit Society. Just search for it there, and you'll find the page pretty easily. You can like it, follow it, stay up to date with all the new episodes and all the news that comes out and so on and so forth. So that's it. Uh, Just one more thing before I air the interview today. As a a frequent reminder, many of you will uh, have heard this spiel many times, and I apologize for that. But join my Patreon page if you like the show. I need your you know, financial support to travel, to conferences, to buy new equipment, and to pay for the hosting fees that are piling up as we speak. So, to all my current Patreon subscribers, thank you so much for your continued support. You're all heroes. Your efforts and your financial contributions are certainly appreciated. For those of you who have not subscribed please consider doing so. Uh, There's some bonus footage on the Patreon page. That catalog of bonus material for subscribers only is going to increase exponentially in the next couple of months. I have some really exciting plans lined up for that. You're not going to want to miss them. So check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash deadpundits. That's patreon.com slash Pundits, And you can subscribe at the $3 level a month five dollars a month or eight dollars a month if you are filthy stinking fucking rich in any case if you like the show please support it tell your friends share me on social media spread the word yeah so here it is without further ado mr christian Parenti, part due. enjoy 2016 will go down as the hottest year on record and the north and south poles can't handle the heat Climate scientists say polar sea ice the size of India has disappeared. That's about as big as two Alaskas. Now the amount of sea ice at the poles is at a record low for the season. CBS News contributor and theoretical physicist Dr. Michio Kaku joins me now. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being Mm -hmm. here. All right. So first of all, let's just start with explaining what sea ice is and why this is so significant, the melting of it.
1: Well, if you're thinking about buying beachfront property anytime
0: soon, you may want to think twice. (laughs) And welcome back to the show. Joining me today is Christian Parenti. Among many other books, uh, he has written The Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. That was out in 2011. Uh, He's going to be headlining the left forum uh, this year in new york city coming up this summer he's going to be talking about climate change and uh, thankfully he's kind enough to join us today to talk about that very topic how are you doing, doing today christian
1: i'm doing all right how are you
0: well i'm kind of scared to be honest with you because uh it seems like every month there's another report that comes out talking about this impending ecological crisis and and how the uh, the The Earth is warming and the the polar ice caps are melting, and you know it seems that uh, you know i don't know at this point I'm not sure I want to have children and grandchildren. so talk me off the ledge, Christian, or maybe not uh <laughs> what's what's at the bottom of, of of this uh of this problem
1: Yeah, climate change is extremely serious um the you know the science is very clear that the changes caused by climate change are potentially non-linear. I mean the basic issue is that burning fossil fuels emits greenhouse gases, primarily CO2, into the atmosphere. That traps heat in the atmosphere that would otherwise radiate back out into space. And that is uh, leading to an unraveling of the entire climate system. And the potential uh, results of this could be really apocalyptic – because of that, I think people conflate the environmental crisis as a whole with climate change. And uh, they think that the only way to deal with climate change is to have a completely sustainable society and socialism or, or something – You know, frequently, the people who argue this don't even have the courage or tenacity to name the society that they're imagining. Um, and what I've been trying to argue is that actually climate change is just a subset of of a bigger, broader problem, the interconnected crises that are you know, the larger environmental crisis, which involves deforestation, overfishing, increased toxicity of the environment, etc., 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 right? Climate change is just one piece of that. And it gets confused with and conflated with the broader ecological crisis because the implications of climate change are so potentially apocalyptic. But if we separate out the pieces of the broader environmental crisis, we see that climate change is the most pressing one because the time frame for its changes are most immediate. And uh, I, I've been trying to argue that we can, in fact, deal with climate change even on its compressed time frame. And the reason I've been trying to make this case is in part because I think one of the, the main unacknowledged problems in the environmental movement is cynicism. And so to battle against cynicism, to get people to really think that the struggle is winnable I think is very important
0: it's really scary stuff you know I had a friend I had a late-night uh, chat with a friend of mine uh, on Facebook we were chatting back and forth and I think we'd each had a few drinks and uh, I got to tell you my friend had just read this article and it was uh, it was from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, which has presented estimates of how much the earth might warm under the business's usual trajectory over certain time periods and so long story short is by by the year 2300 which is like you know that's pretty far in to the future, right? But still, the year 2300, the Earth could warm by nearly 48 degrees Fahrenheit. So, just for the listeners who aren't aware of this, 2 to 3, 2 to 4 degrees uh, is potentially catastrophic. Uh, 48 degrees is, is beyond apocalyptic many, maybe many times over. And so, it's really easy to get bummed out on this. And so, so yeah, yeah, I think your cynicism is a real threat when you're, when you're yeah. faced with that kind of, uh, that kind of yeah. potential future.
1: Yeah and I mean I mean that relates to catastrophism that's what Eddie Ewan and Jim Davis and others uh, have been arguing against in that book uh, this idea that you know if you can just get people to see how catastrophic all this is then they'll act more immediately and it might in fact be the opposite right that that you know what, with the story the story we need is not about how catastrophic it is but how in the face of this catastrophe the looming catastrophe that everybody can intuitively feel that there is a credible path out. That's what really matters. So it's just to follow up on the catastrophe one more point. But yeah, if anyone's doubting this or interested, Jim Hansen, formerly of NASA, his book. Uh, he he lays out the process by which this compounding uh, f- feedback loops uh, could set in, whereby, for example, you know, the Arctic melts warms so that the permafrost melts and then all the trapped methane within beneath the tundra comes out and some giant series of belches and methane is an extremely uh potent greenhouse gas it doesn't last in the atmosphere as long as co2 but it it's at least 20 times more potent in terms of trapping heat and you know hansen argues that you know, project all this stuff two thousand years into the future the oceans could have boiled off the earth could be like venus so that's what we face. That's uh, and actually, stuff.
0: So that, that's the tipping point that you talk about where there's this positive feedback loop such that, you know, you, you mentioned the nonlinear uh, progress into hell, the regress into hell. So maybe, maybe you know – so. Mm. Talk, talk, talk a little bit about that. Explain, because I want folks to understand. Like you know, there, there's a, there's a kind of there's a there's an acceleration uh, involved in this. I think that that's just now coming out and reaching the the sort of mainstream uh, political right. discourse and in, in news media. That's even more terrifying than like say what Al Gore was saying back in you know two thousand or whatever.
1: Basically, it means that cause and effect lag. Right. That in climate change is not that as carbon dioxide. Per million parts in the atmosphere increases, you have a, a parallel and consummate increase in temperature slowly but surely. But that rather you can have this increase in CO2 in the atmosphere and a buildup of heat in the environment, and then and, but you don't feel it, and then sudden changes that kick in all at once. And this was the idea that the climate system could shift radically like that was in the 19 early 1980s seen as a totally fringe idea. And then in the 90s, they did the first full ice core extractions from the Greenland ice sheet. And they saw through that record that there were, in fact, real sudden switches in the climate system. And then similar research with sediment, uh, you know, um, ancient sediments that could be extracted and, and by looking at uh, uh, water isotopes, y- it, 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 it reflects temperature and CO2, and they could see that there were, in fact, numerous times where things shifted very quickly, that, that ice ages, for example, didn't stop and start over the course of centuries, but, you know, over the course of decades. So we know that the, mm-hmm. the system is actually not as stable as it appears. The causes of change can build up, the effects lag, and then they kick in all at once. So we have to act quickly, um, and I think, you know, we have to really not be Pollyannish about technology, but we, we have to embrace technology. That's going to be part of the solution. Right, but so I, I say, say that as an anti, department. I say that as an anti, as an anti-nuke person, because your typical leftist who's, who's like robust about technology, they immediately go to atomic power. And it's like, I, I don't think that's what it is, but, um, we could get into like what kind of, what kind of currently verboten technologies should the left be discussing,
0: Right, So your, your, your discussion uh, about uh, pr- being pro-technology in this sort of uh, specific way is there's an implicit argument there against the dominant framing of the ecological crisis found like say in the World Social Forum where you go to these meetings as you spelled out in one of your articles uh, that when it was in Dissent uh, Magazine in summer of 2013. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called A Radical Approach to Climate Crisis. It spells this out really well where you mentioned that it's say the World Social Forum there are a lot of people talking about how we need to you know turn back the clock and we need to have you know like local farming and stuff like that and your argument is a really important one say like climate change needs to be uh, combated with the political and institutional apparatus that we currently live under we don't not only do we not have time to go back you know why would we even want to (laughs) right so tell tell me a little bit about why you think technology is is so important for this process
1: yeah i mean People say, you know, no techno fix, which is a metaphor, right? This idea that like technology can stand in for changing social relations. Well, they're right about that. Social relations also have to change. But that slips into this idea that technology isn't part of the solution. And technology has to be part of the solution, um, in part in terms of stripping CO2 out of the atmosphere. But let me get to that in a second. That, you know I mean, I guess more, more immediately, right? Like in terms of making the credible case for why climate change is why we can address it under these institutions here and now, is this, right? We have everything we need. We have the technology, we have the laws, and we have the money.? Right? So it's not like we have to invent um, solar power. Uh, or commercial so, solar power, or we have to you know, create an electrical grid, in, in this country at least, um, or invent electric vehicles. We have all that stuff. The problem is to bring it to scale. We even have the laws, believe it or not. Uh, the, the key law is the Clean Air Act of 1970, which was modified by a lawsuit, Massachusetts versus EPA, And the story of that was that the Clinton administration signed the Kyoto Protocol and the Kyoto Protocol was the first international treaty to try and cut greenhouse gas emissions. It signed the Kyoto Protocol, but it could not get it ratified by the Senate. So the U.S. was not a participant in in the Kyoto Protocol. In response to that, the state of Massachusetts, plus several other states and some large green groups, sued the Environmental Protection Agency saying, Under the language of the Clean Air Act, the EPA actually has to do what this government should have done anyway under the Kyoto Protocol. It has to cut greenhouse gas emissions. It has to find firms that exceed whatever the safe limit is. And this lawsuit took 10 years. And in 2007, the Supreme Court said, yep, Massachusetts and the other plaintiffs are correct. The federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency – has an obligation to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. This is a end of the Bush administration. He does nothing. He's like just ignores it. Obama comes in. He says he is going to follow the wall, but he in fact ignores it. He then, um, you know, under pressure, finally issues two really politically easy laws. One that covers automobiles, which were already regulated through state laws, so there's no political cost to saying. OK, these are the, the federal emissions limits for automobiles because it was essentially embodied in California's emission state emission laws, you know, because California is such a big market. Automakers take that into consideration even for cars that they sell in Georgia. Um, and then the next law, it's a tailoring rule that the EPA had to issue in, in response to mass species versus EPA. The next one they issued was around new coal fired power plants. But that wasn't going to be politically problematic because nobody was going to try and build a coal-fired power plant because of the fracking revolution. And fracking had – which becomes uh, – you know, it's it's the 2005 energy bill that legalizes fracking. And it was just this experimental technology at the time, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. And then we get the whole shale revolution and natural gas prices dropped by like 80%. So by the time the Obama administration is issuing this rule on um, new coal-fired power plants, the economics are such that no one's going to build a coal-fired power plant. They were already at that point switching coal-fired power plants over to natural gas because natural gas was so cheap. So those are both like politically easy. Then the next thing was existing coal-fired power plants, and that's the clean power plan, And that's this highly compromised... Um, sort of pathetic law that Trump is uh, making war on. So, anyway, that's that's the law in a nutshell. That we have this law, Massachusetts versus EPA, and we're waiting for the EPA to issue tailoring rules for you know the uh, oil refining industry, for bakeries, for cement plants, for the uh, the rails, for air traffic, traffic, you know. They have to produce rules for all this stuff, and it's it's obviously not going to be done under this administration. Mm -hmm. But the point being that we have the laws even in this country, which is the most recalcitrant country in terms of the international equation as regards climate change. And then finally, I'm, I'm listing the three things that we have, the three pieces that we need to move forward even under these compromised conditions. The technology, the law, and then finally the money. And we have the money. There is um, even if we don't go after the military budget, you could say like that's the obvious thing. Whenever you want money, you can just say as a leftist, look at the military budget. It's a whole bunch of waste and corruption, and then you could push back and say, and yeah, politically, it's impossible to go after that. It's like, okay, you're right, but you know what? There's actually even a lot of other money in the federal government. The the federal government's purchasing of energy is enormous. The federal government has a fleet of like, um, what was it like over four hundred thousand like office buildings, most of which are like large and very energy intensive in a way. So they could retrofit those, reduce the amount of energy they use. The federal government has huge fleets of vehicles. It could switch those vehicles to uh, electric. And if the federal government did that and then large states followed suit using this purchasing power, which I've called the the big green buy, that would help drive uh, the rest of the market the producers of clean technology one of the main problems they they face is you know being able to to achieve economies of scale so years ago i interviewed uh, the ceo of a company that assembled electric trucks and electric trucks are you know they're just they have electric motors but the rest of it the cab the the, the chassis the drivetrain cetera – are purchased from the automobile industry in, at large. And and the guy said, you know, if I could buy the components we need in batches of 100 rather than batches of 5, we could possibly achieve 20% savings and then be competitive with fossil fuel-fueled vehicles. And um, you can imagine how if the government helped by purchasing this technology, that it could help drive down costs to then trigger for purely economic reasons, a transition in the private sector. And this is a really important fact about how technology is developed under capitalism. Government plays a huge role, and it doesn't just play a role in subsidizing R&D. It also generally plays the role as the first-generation consumer. You think about airplanes, um, computers, uh, medicine, like war in the government and medicine, and that's where all those, like, the latest innovations in anesthesia and all this kind of stuff comes from so right. i mean the government the role of government consumption is
0: very very important and laying the infrastructure as well right if you have electric vehicles you need to have charging stations and of course so it's yeah it's it, there's a feedback exactly. loop that can they can sort of feed itself but uh as you mentioned the sort of uh the sort of uh what do you call it the uh something socialist uh The shadow socialism of the U.S. government can facilitate this big green buy that will kick off this feedback loop that can facilitate this transition.
1: And there's one more source of money which can't be overlooked, which is that corporate America is sitting on more uninvested cash than at any time since the Federal Reserve has been keeping records on this. And that goes back to 1956. And this is not money that's given out to stockholders or paid as bonuses to managers. This is money retained by firms for investment. Uh, I mean, it's it's just one more symptom of the the larger problem of overaccumulation, right? Within global capitalism, but I think it's it's like over two trillion dollars that the Fed says corporate America is sitting on and waiting to invest. They're waiting for cues, right? If the government were like, yes, we are now going to buy electric vehicles, we're going to retrofit all our buildings, and we are in fact going to issue these tailoring rules. I mean. All that's in place, oh, you say, oh, they'd be then, foaming so, at
0: the mouth. I mean, they, right. cor- corporate America loves government guarantees. I mean, I mean, it's free money, <laughs> you know. Exactly. in a yeah. sense, they absolutely love it. Yeah, if they can pull that two trillion dollars out from underneath their enormous mattresses and, uh, and actually invest it, you know, we could have jobs in a green economy. That sounds nice to me. I don't know.
1: Exactly. Now, the thing is, if we had that, it wouldn't be the same as having a sustainable society. What it would do is it would start decarbonizing the global economy. And if it, that happened rapidly and radically enough, it would buy us time to deal with the other environmental problems like overfishing, deforestation, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's you know, one other thing. We started on this about technology. Um, we're at uh, – whatever is it – 405 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere – the tipping points are associated with 350, thus the name of the organization. It's like the politically correct thing to say is that well, you just plant trees and that's how you strip CO2 out of the atmosphere. I don't think that would work actually. And yeah. typically, what lefties who are pro technology, they they you know embrace nukes. It's like this is the um, the 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 brave, robust, macho kind of technology to embrace. I think
0: atomic power
1: is completely a waste of time. Partly because it's extremely expensive.
0: Oh yeah, I mean the government subsidies required to even keep it going could yep. be invested in in other things, right? That, wind, yeah. wind energy, and and uh, you know non carbon related technologies.
1: Yeah, and also you know a nuke plant only works if it's one hundred percent completed. You can design a wind farm that has ah. three hundred turbines, and if you have some problem and you only build one hundred and seventy five, well then you connect one hundred and seventy five of them to the grid. There you go. But um, the technology exists. To strip CO two out of the atmosphere, right? This has existed since you know the
0: 30s. Maybe. Is this sequestration? Uh, well, sequestration is is the more prob-
1: sequestration is the more problematic part. Okay. It's carbon capture, carbon capture and sequestration. It Typically, you strip the CO2 out of the atmosphere and then turn it into a critical gas and put it in the ground. And that part is highly problematic because if CO2 is stored as a gas, then it can leak out. It's deadly as a gas. But the technology exists to, to turn CO2 essentially into baking soda. Huh. Now, the cost of this is like astronomical at this point. But the technology exists. There are firms that... Are selling this equipment to the oil industry, um, and and other uh, you know industrial facilities that want CO two supplies. The oil industry uses CO two to pressurize wells. They shove CO two back down wells to create pressure to drive oil up. But you know at this point, you you could only imagine socialization working. But if the governments of the the major powers of the planet took science seriously, they would realize that the whole thing is going to unravel and come apart unless this technology is whatever, seized, purchased, whatever, do whatever, It doesn't matter, right? Make make the inventors rich or throw them in jail. Who cares? Right? Take the technology, let everybody use it, and shovel enormous amounts of money into building out this technology to strip so CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into inert substances. The cost for that would be enormous, but the price tag of not doing it is everything. So,
0: you know, it's horrendous. I mean, a lot of people talk about a new green deal, uh sorry a green new deal rather which would sort of uh replicate what we saw in the 1930s and 40s by putting america to work uh rehabilitating industry but under a uh, sort of green carbon free future it sounds like that you're talking about something along those lines in terms of policies
1: well in the short term in terms of like in terms of trying to get off of fossil fuels yeah i i've, I've always been sympathetic to the green new deal and, and i'm also sympathetic to the the actual new deal um the the thing about like carbon capture and not sequestering it as a gas but making it into some sort of you know inert bicarbonate um i mean that that would be harder to do under current arrangements because there would have to be so much money devoted to building out that infrastructure mm-hmm. but yeah the a green new deal is totally possible doesn't require new laws we got the technology we have the money and the key thing is it's it's not the same as a sustainable society because that's what a lot of people are reacting against. They're like, wait a minute. That's not a sustainable society. The problems are much de- deeper. They're absolutely right. But you know, it could be a meaningful step in real time towards dealing with the problem of runaway climate change, which then just buys time to address all of the other environmental crises. And so I think it's very important for people, if they want to combat cynicism, to sort of separate climate change from all the other problems and the you know as i may have said to you some one other time it's like you know the easy case to make intellectually is that all is lost and that we're not gonna survive the more difficult case to make is the credible case for how we can survive and i think that you know human beings are i mean they have to be Life is is innately kind of optimistic and pushes against barriers until the last moment when, you know, inevitably life is snuffed out. But I think about the miners in, what was it, in Chile who were trapped for, what was it, eight days or something. You know, I mean, there was no reason for them to think that they were going to survive. They didn't just give up and die. They, like, organized themselves they took care of the younger miners who were like totally freaking out they like had this whole system of sharing the food and the water and they're like like slept and everybody was like just basically like you know meditating and one guy would be on duty like tapping and listening and you know they created this little impossible at one level totally ridiculous survival plan and it worked you know because by total luck they were found i mean that's that 's admirable, and that 's the way we should operate it 's not about like you know what's what 's the probability? Never mind what the probability w- what 's possible it 's clearly possible to use existing technology, existing law, and current amounts of money that we have to make the first really absolutely significant and meaningful steps towards decarbonizing the world economy
0: All right to quote uh, a line from or to to misquote a line from the six million dollar man. Uh, we have the technology we can build it
1: right yeah yes and see I mean it's, and we it's have dollars
0: we We have way more than six million dollars as you've pointed out uh It seems to me that uh that separating out uh you know this this real potential is important, and particularly when a lot of the hucksters uh you know in the last ten years or so- ever since Al Gore and his buddies saw dollar signs uh coming out of this. And uh, in potential political careers as well, a lot of them have been pushing uh, sort of phony solutions. I mean, what do you say about like, say, carbon, uh, you know, uh, credits and 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 that type of things? Because a lot of the things that we run up against when you're talking about, okay, you know, pro technology in a, in, a, in a certain sense, you're talking about pro existing policies, pro existing technology. How that gets translated in the discourse a lot of times is sort of like this this real half assed market solution, which you know. Uh, I guess when anybody says a market solution, you should probably grab your wallet because somebody's coming for it.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. You know, like Carl Polanyi said that, yeah, that market economic theory has always been this utopian expansionist and just completely dangerous and wrongheaded thing. And so that's what ultimately underlies these kind of market solutions. But you know, what's interesting about cap and trade is that it has failed and why it has failed. So, you know why have cap and trade markets failed and it's because the operative word in cap and trade is cap right there's uh-huh. there's no reason to trade credits in the right to pollute if there's no penalty for not having credits right if you're free to pollute why like buy indulgences to pollute right so mm-hmm. i mean if there were to have been a cap and trade system that had serious caps if you want to have some secondary markets you know uh, fine, I wouldn't be opposed to that. But the whole thing with this stuff was they were never going to cap emissions, right? That was the whole thing. And there's this whole discourse about efficiency and about how it's going to work, and, this, and it's just buying time. It's just total bullshit, is what it, it, seems, it is. It
0: seems to me, if you know, if, if you had a, a syphilis problem uh, and you were operating on a cap and trade system. You know maybe you just want to stop stop the syphilis instead of just passing it around instead of passing the buck to somebody else right? <laughs> I, mean, that's an extreme well, extreme
1: I mean another way to put it is like I mean we would never have a cap and trade market for like rape and murder right sure, sure yeah. we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna cap we're gonna cap homicides at the current level and sell uh sell the the licenses to kill people and, <laughs> and then use the income. To, to try and uh, suppress crime and, and prosecute the killers. I mean, that's essentially the logic of cap and trade. Wow.
0: Wow. That, that's way better than my syphilis example. I'm glad you came out with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the main thing is, you know, like the European market, carbon market has totally collapsed. The whole thing was like modeled on on a car a ton of carbon costing at least 32 or something like that, euros. Mm-hmm. And, it you know, it, it immediately more or less went down to like three euros a ton because – there's, there's no cap. There's no penalty right. for polluting. So forget it. This is a joke.
0: It's like Bitcoin, right? When there was a potentially infinite num- amount of Bitcoins, inevitably the value is going to tank, right? And so if you can't get the cap part right, which is what we seem to be failing at, then the trade is just going to going to tank, it seems. Yeah.
1: So my line on that is I, I'm pro-cap. And like if you have significant caps, you also want to have some little secondary market, big deal. Right? Fine, I don't care. Um, right, right. The thing is, it never happens. What we need, though, is you know, we need state action to euthanize the fossil fuel industry, and we have the law, and you know, other countries have different laws, but we we've got the Clean Air Act. You know, we can thank Richard Nixon for that, uh, and that is the the enabling legislation that we need, and we have it, and it's time to start issuing rules pursuant to that, and basically fining industries because the way that works is that. Industry has the right to burn um, fossil fuels, but if their emissions exceed a certain level, we haven't set those levels, because Obama dragged his feet on issuing these rules, Mm -hmm. but if they exceed those levels, then they have to pay fines, right? So it's a de facto carbon tax, and all economists agree that a carbon tax is the key thing, right? If you want to like get investment to move over to, into renewable energy, then you've got to raise the cost of using fossil fuels and the best way to do that is a carbon tax well you know letting the EPA issue these rules and then levy fines on industry would be a de facto carbon tax it's like you know either you invent the technology to meet the emission standards or you don't emit the pollutants and you close the facility and you move your investment into some other technology
0: right on so let's I mean let's let's wrap up uh, in, a, in the next five minutes um, but but let's 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 finish on this question because I this all sounds very encouraging uh, I was a little depressed when we first started this interview so you're doing your job somewhat at least uh, you talked me off a ledge But I mean, it it just—I can't help but to feel. Maybe being too cynical here, but it just really feels like we're getting our ass kicked right now, right? I mean, Trump is dismantling EPA regulations. Uh, You know, this this climate change business is is just picked apart by the anti-intellectual right. Uh, of this country, you know, why is it that we're losing? It seems to me, you know, that the sh- that there's something wrong with our strategy, that there's something wrong with our political practice that we're not really able to sell this. And, and the right wing can sort of, you know, accuse us of, of being these like shrieking, hysterical liberals. Um, well, what do you think it might be about our political practice? I mean, does it, does it point back to like the Al Gore, you know, Al Gore, the Prius driving liberal, what, what do you think it is about uh, that? that that we really haven't been able to sell this to the, to the masses of of, of Americans the way we might have wanted
1: to. I, mean, I, I suppose, I mean, this being, being an environmental politics
0: is what you're saying. Right. Right. Is so the, 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 the impending catastrophe and this, this severity severity yeah. of
1: this thing. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that it hasn't been linked to the interests of, uh, regular people. And that I think was the power of the green new deal. So I was always sympathetic to that. And, um, I was uh, it was unfortunate how that went down. And, um, you know, uh, you know, as I mentioned to you in another offline once you know, I knew Van Jones back in the day before he was a radical, he came on his internship from Yale to the Bay Area when I was out there and and hooked up with a friend of mine who was an old RCP activist. And, um, you know, it was unfortunate that he was the green czar and that he got outed for uh, being a, uh, a Maoist and you know pretty anti-intellectual opportunistic kind of nonprofit foundation funded right. Huckster in the Bay Area
0: because he was defanged politically after that right So for folks who don't remember recall uh, President Obama appointed Van Jones as Green Czar to kind of like try to solve some of these issues is that, is that I'm getting that yeah no
1: budget Van, Van's Joan was Van's job was to sell the whole idea that there could be, A kind a a transition that works for everybody, and Uh he was outed as having been a you know a radical and and, you know he he was a radical he was a Maoist. he was sort of a silly ridiculous Mm -hmm. uh and he was a a Bay Area nonprofit huckster I knew him well I mean you know yeah he was yeah he was defanged and down down went the whole idea of the Green New Deal. So it became tainted, it also wasn't radical enough, isn't that? But you know, I think it, it, it was a, a very good point of purchase for a, a mass audience. It's like, yeah, people have to be put back to work. It's a and opportunity. You know, what, what would do that what, what could be a bigger jobs program than simultaneously writing off and retiring the entire energy infrastructure as it currently exists? And replacing it with a new one, come
0: on, you know, right. it would. I mean, that would be a huge project. Instead, we've got uh, Hillary Clinton saying that we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of business. You know, and uh, yeah. you know, and you know, the, the what's on offer there, of course, is uh, you know job training. Well, that yeah. sounds nice. I'm a 60-year-old coal miner. I'm going to go back to community college. This is the answer that, they, that the mainstream liberals uh, sort of have on offer. And of course, it's, it's not a climate-based uh, fix there. So yeah. well, your, your strategy is clearly much more optimistic. And uh, you've talked me off the ledge. I feel better about our, our, our chances. It seems to me that we need to focus in on uh, climate change and talk about the ecological crisis somewhat in distinction from that. So any parting words uh, before, before we go?
1: Um, I'm, I'm heartened by the, the younger generation, the millennial left. I mean, I think the millennial left is, um, you know, there's a lot of problems with social media, this, that, blah, 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 the usual problems. But I'm, I'm really heartened by how many people are political. And, um, so, you know, that, that's part of what gets me through the day is realizing that there's so many people who despite everything that's trying to make us stupid and short-sighted and narcissistic and lame and, um, you you know, know. not connected to real victory and not caring and and sleepwalking through life like avatars, you know, despite all that, this, this next generation, your generation is producing a whole renaissance of thinking and activism. And, and, um, it's great. So it's not enough yet, but, step in the right direction
0: we're definitely moving towards building the uh, political forces uh, that will will be needed to implement our existing uh, platform into some serious uh, change so christian Parenti, thanks again for joining us Uh, everybody go out and uh, pick up his book the tropic of chaos it was out in 2011 but still incredibly relevant uh, for today's uh, you know political ecological crisis so thanks again for joining us christian you bet And that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a lot. I know I did in this process. I look forward to hearing and seeing some of you at the Left Forum in two weeks in New York City. If you're around and you see me, say hello. I'm happy to chat. Uh, Christian Parenti will be there. Angela Nagel will be there. Many other folks that you've heard on the show uh, in the past and that you will hear in the future will be there. So if you are in the area, stop by and say hello It's a, it's kind of a wild event. There's all types of really like wackos to be honest with you, uh, who are kind of like peripherally attached to the left, but it should be a lot of fun anyway. Good people watching. So that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, once again, find me on Twitter at dead pundits. Check me out on Facebook, uh, go to SoundCloud, subscribe. Tell your friends, all that good stuff. Check me out on patreon.com slash dead pundits. Subscribe to the show and support me. Uh, You know, help keep these episodes coming. Uh, You know, I have some big plans in the future, but I'm going to need your financial support to make those plans a reality. So, next week, I've got an excellent show. I'm going to be wrapping up our three week series on left wing policy. Joining me is Megan Erickson Kilpatrick. And Kenzo Shibata. Both of them are educators in uh, New York City and Chicago, respectively. We're gonna talk about neoliberalism and what this shitty education system is doing to poor and working class kids across the country. You're not gonna want to miss it. Until then, dead pundit. Out.
1: <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother.